Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet author Elaine Orr, whose recent book, Swimming Between Worlds, is set in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, during the early stages of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. The Richmond Times-Dispatch observes that Swimming Between Worlds is a novel of great humanity. Conceived with passion and rendered with grace, it scores a triumph for its author and a blessing for her readers. The plot focuses on Tacker and Kate and the world around them, and whether they can find a life together given Tacker's desire for social change and Kate's desire to go slow on race relations. It is a love story at the epicenter of change in a small southern town in the late 50s and early 60s. We start the show with Elaine reading about the protagonist's initial impressions upon his return home. His town of Winston-Salem has changed, but after spending two years in Nigeria, Tacker Hart had changed even more. Chapter 1, July 1959. Tacker Hart came home from Nigeria to discover a town he almost knew. The Winston-Salem of his youth was branded by Ardmore Methodist, Reynolds High, and shopping at Davis Department Store on 4th Street, his youth green with creeks and football fields, turning white in winter with sledding and the Sears Christmas display. And then there was the depot of his father's store, Hart's Grocery, near the intersection of 1st Street and Hawthorne, right where Peters Creek ran. The grocery existed out of time, smelling of onions and floor wax, blooming with color in fruit displays and in cereal boxes, and sanctified by the community of regulars who stopped by for a special on ham hocks or conversation with Tacker's father, or the full week's shopping and a drink from the Coca-Cola machine. Everyone was welcome, or so Tacker had thought. Almost two years later, and the air still carried the high, sweet smell of tobacco. But there was an expressway through town that nipped at the heels of West End, the neighborhood where he'd grown up, and that occasionally, where an elevated section curved near Hawthorne, threw a car over the guardrails and passengers to their deaths. Thruway Shopping Center had grown up in his absence like a film set temporarily installed, only it wasn't temporary. Tacker's mother drove out there almost every day. Wake Forest College was the new boast to the city, which was fair enough. The Tacker had no investment in it, having studied architecture at State College in Raleigh, flourishing in the competitive atmosphere of design studios housed 
on a huge courtyard on the north side of campus. More changed than Winston-Salem was Tacker. He had left home a minor American hero and returned disgraced. The thought of his violent dismissal from an international assignment with the Clintock Corporation hollowed his chest even now, four months after his return. Elaine Neal Orr is an American writer who grew up in Nigeria. Both worlds converge in her novels Swimming Between Worlds and A Different Sun, a novel of Africa, and her memoir Gods of Noonday, A White Girl's African Life. Elaine has published widely in literary journals such as the Missouri Review, Image, Blackbird, and anthologies, and has been writer-in-residence at numerous universities lecturing on writing and literature. She's on the faculty of English at NC State University, where she won the Alumni Outstanding Research Award 2019 for her fiction. Lane also serves on the faculty of the Spalding University Brief Residency MFA and Writing Program in Louisville. She lives in Raleigh with her husband and their dog, Sam. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Elaine, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's yeah. delightful to be here, Landis. Uh, Thanks yeah. for reading my book. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, you kind of came down and didn't quite go through Winston-Salem, but you kind of passed in that general direction, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I have a sense of it every time I'm close. Yeah. Now, did you did you have any ties to Winston-Salem growing up? Or? So, well, yeah. Actually, um, my parents were Southern Baptist missionaries. Mm. I was born and grew up in Nigeria, but we came for furloughs uh, to the U.S., and we spent one furlough in West End. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, so what time period was yeah. that? That was 1960 to 61, so it's a, oh, about right. the time of the novel. I was going to say, you're um, just right in the wheelhouse of what we're there doing you here. Go. Right? Yeah. yeah, and Nixon and Kennedy were running for president. So talk about this time period for a minute as you as you laid out in your, your opening read here. We're in the early 60s. There's a lot of, lot going on. The civil rights movement's you know, about to get underway. Yeah, uh, one reviewer says it's, uh, it ha- you know, the novel's occurring just before the gun goes off in the civil rights movement. Um, so it, it actually begins in 59, goes into 60. Uh, so for the most part, white Americans are not that aware of what's going on, um, but a lot is going on in African-American communities. Mm-hmm. Um, folks are being taught about civil disobedience and a character is going to show up who's been at Fisk University, uh, an African American character, mm-hmm. um, and he's going to his life is going to intersect with these two white folks. So um, I get ahead of some of the main action of the civil rights movement, but there's the the sit-ins mm-hmm. are central. Yeah, we're going to talk. We're going to talk yeah. about that in the show here. But before we get into the characters and some of the plot, um, I went to law school. In Winston Salem. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so that I had spent three years there. 
uh, you know, but I see in your opening read you talk, you call a Wake Forest College as the new boast in town. Well, now we got Wake Forest University, right? Right, but it was you know Wake Forest College there just uh, then, mm-hmm. and yeah. NC, let's see, State College, right. not NC State yeah, yeah. University. That's where right? my, that's where my great uncle Frank used to say he went State College. Yeah. yeah. So when you're a novelist, you have to get these things right. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did was get a a city map from 1960, so I I kind of knew. The street names. Uh, kind of new. So you, you're you're setting this in a turbulent time period in American history, um, but you're bringing some of your own background to bear here because, as you said, you grew up in Nigeria. To talk about that for just a minute. Sure. So I I grew up in rural areas of Nigeria. I wasn't in the cities. I wasn't in Lagos. Uh, pretty isolated from other white folks. Um, the town I was born into had 30,000 Nigerians in it, maybe 20 white folks. They were all Baptist missionaries and their children. Mm -hmm. Um, So the world was, to me, was black, and I did not know another world until I was six in Winston-Salem. You must have stood out, Elaine. You had the the I did stand out in that one. I was called out um, all the time. But I thought that was the normal world. I thought the world was black. Um, And then came to the U.S. and found out that, uh, well, in 1960... It was so segregated. Mm. I, I hardly remember seeing what were then called Negroes, right? Yeah, yeah. and you you know, you know have this character, Tacker. Uh, he, he's the male protagonist. You almost have two protagonists in here. you got a male and a female. Kate, we're going to talk about too. But Tacker um, goes to Nigeria. He takes this job in architecture. He thinks that's what he wants to do. He embeds himself in the community. He makes a lot of friends. Right. Nigerian and, friends. Nigerian friends. And he sees nothing wrong with, you know, this interchange and intermingling and socializing and so forth. And he comes back to Winston-Salem. It's totally different from when he left. Well, it's totally different because he's different. Right. Right. Talk um, about that. Assignment. Yeah. Yeah. He grew up with Jim Crow. Uh, but Jim Crow was normal. Just like for me, uh, Black World was normal. Right. I didn't think anything about it. He didn't think anything about Jim Crow. Uh, it was normal for black folks not to come past Church Street. Mm. It was normal that um, the only African-American who might enter his dad's store would be a maid. That mm-hmm. was the only reason she could go in that store was because she worked for white folks. Mm. Um, but when he comes back after b- having been so befriend- befriended by Nigerians, uh, he's suddenly race. He's aware of it. Mm. Right, uh, he's even aware of his own whiteness, which white people are generally not aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and so then he sees the injustice. Did did some of what Tacker felt was that something of what Elaine felt when she came to the U.S.? Not at age six, I have to say. Oh, well, you came, you came at age young. six, you're too young. Yeah, but when we yeah. were on another furlough yeah. Yeah. Uh, later in Decatur, Georgia, and I was fourteen. Um, I entered Decatur High School, and it had been recently integrated. That was in the 60, late 60s. And that was the first time I experienced racial tension. And it was like there was electricity in the hallways. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I had never felt anything like it in my life. So um, I was shocked that uh, that white folks and black folks could not intermingle in the lunchroom, yeah. right, that, that there was so much... Anxiety. So your, your, your experience and the one that you convey through this character, Tacker, uh, is one where it appears that there's more acceptance and more inclusiveness of the other 
in Nigeria than there was at the time in the U.S. Is that is that how it was for you, even though you were different skin tone, um, blonde hair? Were you accepted in Nigeria? Uh, well, yes. I'm, uh, for the most part, mm-hmm. um, I was in the south of Nigeria, which had already been Christianized. Mm-hmm. Uh, the north is Muslim, but we had there were missionaries in the north. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for the most part, Nigerians were quite happy to have Americans in their country, giving them economic opportunities. But you didn't feel this racial hostility. No, I did not feel any. Um, and Nigerians um, did. Nigerians thought of us as Americans. Um, and they thought of each other really in terms of their ethnic group. So I was among the Yoruba in the southwest part of the country, and they would have thought of themselves as distinct from the Igbos in the east. And Americans, we, we weren't even that important, really, mm. right? But we were offering some economic opportunity and um, education, which was really important to them. So Tacker sees this world that he likes and befriends people in Nigeria and then he comes back to a world that's different, and that kind of leads into a question about the title of your book. It's called Swimming Between Worlds. Yeah. Now, did that idea come to you early? Was that uh, a title that you latched onto? No, <laughs> no. We were tr- the, the press was, we had decided on another title, and, they, you know, marketing decided, no, that won't do. But it's and two worlds. It kind of works, right? It works beautifully. Yeah. But my agent, I was walking around in my front yard, and we had minutes to spare. And we came up <laughs> with it, and it's been, it's perfect. And it's quite autobiographical, actually. I mean, my, I've been swimming between worlds all my life. Sounds like you named it after the baby was born. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I had working titles, but I'm not telling you what they okay. were. <laughs> okay. I won't ask them. Uh, okay, a, little, a brief bit about Kate then, and, and we're going to have a little short read about Kate here in just a second. But uh, tell us about Kate's character, um, because you've got the you've got, you've got a white character uh, in Tacker who's going to come back and try to force some social change, but then you've got Kate. Right. So um, Tacker, as you might have been able to tell from the intro, is kind of uh, middle class, but also working class. I mean, his dad owns a grocery. He's now got a second grocery, but um, they're not that elevated in Winston-Salem society, uh, except that Tacker was a star football player. Mm. So that was part of his being the town hero uh, at um, Reynolds High. And Kate's related to the Haynes, and the Haynes, of course, had a lot of wealth and uh, one of the primary industries of the city. And so she's really um, right up there with with the upper class of Mm -hmm. Winston-Salem. So they went to high school together, but she's two years behind Tacker, and they observed each other in their different worlds, Mm -hmm. but weren't really friends until she... He comes back and they run into each other at the store when he, yeah. he starts working there. And, and you can tell this is going to be a little bit of a love story. It starts early, but then they've got different viewpoints and they're in different social standing to some extent. The world's changing around them. Kate's not sure about how she likes the change and Tacker's ready to jump in. Exactly. Kind of, kind of so, I mean, so, you you know, the writer has to have a conflict. Right. <laughs> okay, so they can't, he, they can't be uh, they, both on the same yeah, political exactly. wavelength. No, no, they can't no. both be going, going to support the sit-ins, right? Right, okay. right. And okay. so uh, one reality of Kate's life is that she's lost both of her parents in different very sad ways. And her brother lives on the coast, her younger brother. And so she's a bit of an orphan. She has a beautiful house um, in West End, but she is alone. And so she 
she might be a different person if she weren't in such a fragile state. But given that and her link with the upper class community in Winston-Salem, she just doesn't want to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's very typical of of very well-meaning white folks. Yeah, but she's trying to find her own identity as well, which you, you delve into in the book with her career, wanting to be a photographer, yeah. not something not something that women did on their own, you know, right. in, in that time as much. And But there's a little piece here which speaks to her love of literature. So Kate went to Agnes Scott uh, to college, and she was an English major. But while she was there, uh, someone gave a, her a camera, and she... Um, I think she was working on the the student newspaper, and so she gets a camera and she learns to use it. It's um, it's called the Brick. This was a popular kind of camera. Um, Argus C3, I think, is is the official name of the camera. But in this particular scene, she's thinking um, out of her grief about literature. The subjects of great literature didn't teach Kate anything she didn't already know. That life was sad and lonely or tragic and lonely, though occasionally relieved by humor and a great love, such as she had felt for her father. What the study of literature taught her was that the way to deal with life was through the perfect arrangement of words. A novel contained an ordered world, even if the subject was the chaos of war. A sonnet was a world in 14 lines. Even death was made more complete in literature because it was written in this order. Her father's disappearance was a nothingness, whereas a written account of death was substantiated and could be dealt with. So literature relieved her of absence, and not through abstraction, but through detail. Literature was pain, organized with the symmetry of a camellia. Hmm, nice. So uh, we know a little bit about Kate. Uh, she... She's going to be a stronger woman than you, you start her out to be in the book. Of course, another thing about novels is if people don't change, you don't have a good novel either. Right. <laughs> right. In fact, she changes uh, quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. Yes, she does. So we got that going for us. But let's talk about the world of race from two different points of view at the beginning. Um, and we've got a reading here that uh, we're going to see it from two sides. We're going to see it from Tacker's side and from her side. It involves um, an African-American who's come to – pick up some milk and an event happens and then you'll see a later reading here scene where Kate sees him for the first time running through her backyard but how they see this person is totally different you know right exactly talk talk about that yeah so it's the same day uh tacker scene happens a little earlier than Kate's but this is the African-American character who's been at Fisk we don't know that that yet the reader doesn't know it the characters don't know it um, and he is in West End, and he comes to the grocery to get some milk. And uh, when he leaves, he's um, he's accosted. He's uh, yeah. yeah. So that's what we're going to read first. And then when he's trying to get out of the neighborhood, right, right. he actually goes through Kate's alley, and she's outdoors and sees him, and then has a very different perception of him. Okay, let's start first with the reading where Tacker comes into contact uh, with this with this character gains so before i begin this um section i would just like to say that it includes a racial slur um, that i include in the novel as a witness to the times standing tacker saw everything he had missed the men had cornered gains at the storefront they'd swerved to cut him off 
Tacker had walked right past when he went to pick up Gaines's hat. Cool as a cowboy, the older fellow lassoed Gaines with a belt, pinned his arms, and pressed him against the plate glass of the front windows right below the turkey's 12 cents a pound sign. Hey, Tacker said, what are you doing? The milk bottle was sitting on the window ledge. The younger of the two men looked at him. He was a kid, really, a swath of dark hair cutting across his forehead. Teach that nigger a lesson, Tacker heard from somewhere. He scrabbled around the Buick, his heart whapping. The woman in the blue suit backed away. Hey, cut it out, he yelled, close enough now that he could see the kid's pocked face. They flipped Gaines around so he was facing the street, and the boy kneed Gaines in the groin. He fell like a rag doll onto the sidewalk. When a white lady is passing, the older fellow said, you get off the sidewalk. The man's belly sagged over his belt. Let's just cool down, Tacker said, trying to imagine what his father would do. And Elaine, you layer this uh, story a little bit by bringing in another generation as well. You do it with the last sentence here. He tried to imagine what his father would do because now that he's back and he we won't we won't tell everything that happens in Nigeria, but he has some trouble, and that's why he he has to come back. And he's trying to work in his father's store, um, and that's the only job he has right now. His father's well respected in the community, and so his father's trying to walk this um, line as well between you know what's going on with the racial change and so forth. And so he's wondering, what would his father do? Talk about his father a second. Yeah, so his father, again, his father's a good guy, a good white guy, right? Mm-hmm. And he, they have a maid, and, and he might give her a ride home and um, be gracious with her. But she also uses an outdoor toilet, right? Doesn't come into the home. That was when the houses were built in such a way that there would be perhaps a toilet that was built in the Carport, garage maybe. or the right. carport uh-huh. or something because right. the, the maid couldn't obviously be expected to use the indoor, you know, right. even though they were cleaning it. And, exactly, exactly. Yeah, such right. an odd. I mean, so, just, so com- very odd. Yeah. yeah. Um, the mindset that, that, that at the time. And so he's got this mindset he, and probably passed on to him from his parents. And, sure, and so, yeah. So Tacker's trying to figure out how to honor his father and yet break toward normalcy in his Right, mind. and yeah. not lose too many, uh, you know, Customers, customers in that, the that, store. That's right. So, yeah. So anyway, so uh, he kind of comes to the aid of uh, of Gaines, who later in the book he employs in, in the store with his father's permission. Um, but in this scene, as you said, Gaines takes off. He's running. All he was trying to do was get some milk. Right. And he's trying to get out of the neighborhood, and he goes through um, Kate's area uh, of town. And right. passes near her, and Kate sees him. So right. we're going to pick up with that scene now. A movement at the back of the yard caught Kate's eye. A strong-looking Negro fellow was striding down the alley. She clutched the neck of her pajama top. Perhaps he'd not heard her as her raking had ceased, or seen her either, the young Negro fellow in a jacket carrying a bottle of milk, his head tilted forward as if he wished to avoid contact with the world. The milk bottle gleamed like a huge opal. He must have stolen it. The fellow paused, turned, and looked across the yard at her. Kate put a hand to her mouth. What if he came in her direction? The back fence was low enough to vault. But the man merely lifted the milk bottle to his forehead. Then he pressed an arm forward, as if pushing aside a tree limb, and disappeared up the alley toward 4th Street. Kate sensed a brief thrill of danger, 
and mystery beyond her reach. Her high school friends had grown up with Negro women who were practically their mothers, but she had not. Her her father hired white boys to help with the yard. Her parents had expressed no real philosophy about Negroes, and Kate had little to go on. A squirrel jumped out of a tree, and Kate yelped, taking a step back toward the door. She had never before considered how close she was to the colored world, because after all, Negroes didn't pass this way. She grabbed her father's coat from the picnic table. Inside, she turned the deadbolt on the kitchen door. So, Elaine, you you have this phrase, because after all, Negroes didn't pass this way. It really was a truly segregated world um, at the time. And even, you know, even today, so we've still got those issues, right, and those problems of, of being separate and communities um, but then she turns a deadbolt, almost like someone in a, in a car lot might lock their door when someone of a different color. You've seen that before, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We see it. We see people cross the road to avoid passing by someone, right. yeah. uh, not getting on an elevator, <laughs> right, being worried. Um, and so we, we still have uh, these um, reactions. These, these sort of false fears, right? Right, and, absolutely. Right. And she, yeah. had, she had a false fear at the time, which had been ingrained into her in part because of a section you didn't read here, but mm-hmm. this going through her mind about an assault that took place. And, of course, that you know, transported itself to every possible encounter would right. be like right. that one. You right. Know? And, of course, it was reported, but we don't even know if it was real. Right. Right. Because and, assaults and, are sometimes um, reported um, true. by a black man uh, uh, upon a white woman that are especially then. Um, so how did it come to you to, um, first of all, you chose two white characters to tell the story, right? And, yeah. And, and you did bring Gaines in, and you bring those um, African Americans in later into the story um, when Tacker is kind of being accepted into their world to do some sit-ins. But uh, what made you decide to tell it in, in, from two white characters' standpoint? Well, good question. Um, I think that in some ways, even though I wasn't in the U.S. as a, at their age, right, I was on a college graduate as they are in 1960, um, I think I was kind of trying to work out what it was like for white folks um, during this period. I wasn't here as, as in that period. I didn't experience the civil rights movement in the U.S., I heard about it a little bit in Nigeria. Um, So I I also um, bring Gaines in, and he's he's a complex character, but I didn't think that I was quite um, ready to or maybe had the authority to write his point of view, Um, Mm -hmm. especially a young man, a young black man in 1960, I might feel more up to the task of writing such a character in 2010, mm. right? But in that period of time, what was he thinking, really? Right. Um, so I try to show his actions, and he does stand up to Tacker often. So he, he's a bold character, which is why he gets in trouble. Yeah, right? and he's getting Tacker in trouble. Too, right, 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 right. But for a good cause, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, race is at the heart of this book. And Tacker wants to help. So we've got a reading here. It'll be um, 
the last reading we do before the for the break here. So, Elaine, set this read up, if you would, please. Sure. So, um, a few weeks before this scene, um, Tacker, with his parents, has seen the report on the nightly news of the four young men in Greensboro who were sitting in at the Woolworths. And, um, by the way, that was such a powerful moment in American history because it was on television, Mm -hmm. right? And because folks were watching their televisions while they were eating dinner. And so two weeks later, this is accurate, me in Winston-Salem, a group of Winston State college students and Wake Forest college students planned um, to go in together to stage a sit-in at a Woolworths on 4th Street. So that's the basis of this scene. All right. So let's hear it. Out of the corner of his eye, Tacker saw the boy lean forward and spit on Gaines's neck. His partner squealed with delight. Tacker leaned over the counter and grabbed a bunch of papered napkins. Gaines wiped his neck. A fag in his nigger, the boy said. Tacker looked down at the counter before him and saw reflected in the polished formica the silhouette of his head, a form both absent and present. Anger, simple and hard, rose in him and his arms shook in the swaddling of his coat. Don't, Gaines said, placing a cautionary two fingers at Tacker's wrist. What I tell you, a fag in his nigger, the boy repeated gleefully. Tacker looked at the Negro waitress, who had not moved since they sat down. More than the Atlantic Ocean separated her from the Nigerian women he had seen who sent taxi drivers packing when they pulled too close to their market stalls. Nigerian women took up the entire avenue with their dancing. Traffic control be damned. Gaines began to whistle, go tell it on the mountain. The Negro waitress shifted her stance. Shut that boy up, someone yelled. Over the hills and everywhere, Tacker imagined the words. Many a time, he'd heard Gaines singing in the back room as he unpacked merchandise, the tune relieving the tedium of the day. At the moment in Woolworths, the crowd quieted, and Tacker had again the eerie feeling he'd had that morning at the store when everything was tidied up, that he had passed to the other side of some mystical boundary. And as if the play had reached its climax, someone called, Police! Tacker looked toward the entrance of the store. In came a dozen officers. His heart flapped as the walls of the store leaned in. So, Elaine, as you're researching this, I know you probably had some you know, primary sources, newspaper articles, that kind of thing, but I also understand that you actually had chance to talk to someone who was actually there. Yes, I did. George yeah. Williamson. Okay. And so, so what did he share with you? Yeah. So um, he narrated the scene oh, uh, and, and what follows. Um, and I followed it very closely. Um, he's the one who told me that exactly how they had planned it. Um, they actually went to the wrong store to begin with, and then they Mm -hmm. came down to this store. That's why the police were there so quickly. They Mm -hmm. didn't even get to sit down. But I have my two townies, (laughs) Tacker and Gaines, get there early. And so that's how I got to kind of make up this scene in which uh, they observe what's going on, and there's all this tension and some actual, uh, if not direct assault, um, you know, spitting, um, and students are and arrested. arrested and, and, <laughs> and then I have, because I wanted to be true to the historical story, 
I have um, Tacker and Gaines um, sort of slip out. They're allowed to, actually, because the police officer recognizes Tacker as a football player. Okay. Um, and so he lets him out, and then uh, just just as the students are being arrested. All right. Well, uh, interesting times, interesting story. Listeners, when we come back from our mid-roll break, we're going to do our writing life segment. We're also going to talk more about swimming between worlds with Elaine Neal Orr. So please stay with us. Hey, listeners, it's hard to believe that we're coming to the end of season five with this episode, but we are. And season six will be launching soon. We'll talk about that during the uh, 100th episode, which releases on April the 28th of this month. We'll talk about season six. We'll talk about what's coming under the covers. And we'll just talk about the podcast a little bit during that episode. But before then, we've got a special episode next Tuesday uh, in, in honor of National Poetry Month. We've got five local poets uh, who are going to come on and read some of their work. Uh, Shane Manier, Kia Flo, Blues, Kathy Collins, and Jay Ward. Not only are they going to read several poems each, but they're going to talk about their journeys as poets, and they're going to talk about the importance of poetry in this day and time. So it, it really should be a great episode. So tune in next Tuesday for that. I'd also like to invite you to consider joining our email list if you're not already a member because we we've begun to improve our newsletter we're providing information about what's coming over the next uh, couple of weeks we put this out on a bi-weekly basis and uh, we'll have information in there also about uh, news related to the show and how you can engage with us so and you'll you'll get a free ebook if you join as well so hey you got that that to look forward to as well so consider joining our email list and we can engage with you there and finally i'd just like to say that i'm proud of what we've been doing with our Patreon page, uh, the authors have stepped up to come into the studio and record some really interesting and engaging episodes on craft uh, that I think you'll find uh, find helpful and, and entertaining. So tune into that. You can find out more at uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. It's how listeners can help us uh, defray some of the cost of putting out these two shows a week and... Uh, yeah, so if you if you want to look into that and uh, think about getting some of that content and helping the podcast, we surely would appreciate it. Let's get back to the episode. We're back with author Elaine Neal Orr, author of Swimming Between Worlds, the, the book that we're featuring today on Charlotte Reader's podcast. Elaine, authors sometimes really wring their hands on what they're going to write their next book about or their first, <laughs> or their, or their first book about. Uh, how did uh, how did that hand ringing go for you, and how did you end up landing on this topic? Uh, so, place is so important to me, and uh, I had written this novel set largely in West Africa in 1850, and thought, okay, Elaine, um, let's do a, a more American novel. Um, I don't know that I can ever give up Nigeria entirely, but. Uh, so I, I, I think, where do I want to be in my mind? And I chose Winston-Salem before anything. Uh, and then I chose the year, which was the year we lived there. And you, I, you chose all that before, yeah, you even absolutely. before you chose the social Absolutely. <laughs> it's where do I want to be in my mind? And then um, I did one little Google search, and the first thing that showed up in 1960 was the sit-in at that Woolworths. And everything and, and there, came from that. And there it went. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's an interesting way to go about it. You know, a lot of times when you take writing classes, you know, you'll have a prompt. You might have a picture. You might have a phrase. You might have, you know, a story that you use. Your prompt was finding a place. Right. Where do I want to be? Because for mm -hmm. me, 
writing is always about getting home. It's about being in, when I say country, I don't know, it can be a county, right? right? right yeah. Town, getting to a place I want to be, a mm. place I want to live in my imagination. Okay, well, let's talk. Uh, this is a great segue into the writing life segment for the show here. You teach English, uh, but you also teach creative writing, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, how does that help your own writing? Well, there's nothing better for a writer than to read great literature. Mm. So reading the classics, having taught for years and years and years, I think was enormously helpful when I decided to write a novel. Um, it didn't save me spending 10 years on the first one. Mm, right, right. Uh, right? Um, that's how long it took. You probably had a lot of other things going on. I did. Yeah. I was still working, teaching, yeah. and I'm teaching now. Um, but I knew where to look to find out how to do things. Like, how do you get a character into a room? Uh, how do you build atmosphere? How do you create dialogue? Right? How do you do uh, all of these things? So instead of going for an MFA program where someone told me that, I went to Henry James or I went to Cormac McCarthy or mm-hmm. right, Eudora Welty. I went to all these writers or... Um, uh, Michael Andaje, uh, right? International scope because I teach world lit too. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that's how literature has been so helpful to me as a writer. And, and what about the just the idea of teach? I think you know, I, used to, as I was a lawyer for many years, and sometimes I would teach uh, continuing education courses, and I still do. But and every time I do, I would learn something new in the process, or it might reaffirm some things that haven't been paying close enough attention. When you teach creative writing, you teach these courses, do they help reinforce some of the ideas that you incorporate into your own writing? Well, sure. I mean, I learn from my students. They'll do something. In fact, the idea of having um, Gaines run into both of these characters but in different places on the same same day came from a student. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so since you're a teacher – what do you tell your students on the first day of their creative writing class? <laughs> what do I tell them? <laughs> Follow the syllabus. Yeah, besides that. <laughs> okay. Well, one thing I really believe in is um, it's not so much write what you know. Write what's most authentic to you. Mm. And I think I didn't write sooner about my life in Nigeria because I was embarrassed by it. When I was going to graduate school and uh, you know, post-colonialism was the big theoretical embarrassed from where you came from embarrassed that my parents had been colonialist Uh, that they had been southern baptist missionaries that it it seemed very unsexy to me when i was reading deconstruction or mm -hmm. write these um very contemporary theories and uh critiques of colonialism and I thought, but but you know, this had begun much earlier, actually, when I was a little young girl and would come to the U.S. and I would be so out of it in my little cotton frock. And mm-hmm. the girls I'm supposed to look like are wearing these villager blouses and their Ouijans and all those things. So I thought everything about where I came from was, um, was kind of embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so... It wasn't until I was very sick that I decided to write my memoir, and then it was, you know, uh, no help, no holes barred. Uh, you just uh, got yeah, it out there. I, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you tell your students to be authentic um, on the first day of class. What do you tell them on the last day of class? I, I hope I wouldn't wait till the end of class. Okay. Well, okay. Maybe this is, but a, maybe I hope this I would, is a reminder. I would say this, yeah, reminder, <laughs> um, believe in the universe, that um, there's something about writing if you stick with it, if you really work, um, that's miraculous. 
things begin to come together and you're somehow in tune with something. I don't know. Uh, I may not still be Southern Baptist, but I have a spiritual streak. Mm. And I believe there's, there's something uh, helping us, whether it's just our own genius, I don't know. But I, I think it's, there's a kind of genius at work that ripples all through the universe. So now, since I've got a, uh, uh, an English teacher and a creative writing teacher in the studio, and I've got someone who's written several novels and you know, your memoir and everything, so this process of getting started... Mm-hmm. How do you get started as a writer when you're putting a book together? How do you get started? Like yeah. I'm starting a new novel now, right? Exactly. Yeah, you you knock your head against the wall. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I told some friends recently, uh, my new book is alive and ugly, but yep. that's better than beautiful and dead. That's, that's a good way to look at yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. so I just have to keep writing this ugly book until I can make it beautiful. But I have to figure out where it's going. And I figure it out by talking to people by just writing i have to show up and and sit down and write and i have to do research mm. um which do you do first i do it all, do it at all? This, i do it all at once because i i, I have you never mean, written you, you, about something i don't know anything about right so you do research before you start writing a little the story. bit um well with this one no because i already knew a great deal it seems as though it's going to be set in raleigh it's uh the main character is going to be in her 50s. She's a curator of African art at a museum very much like the North Carolina Museum of Art. So there you, there you there's a lot that I already know, but I don't know. I didn't know the plot. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, that's the hard part to figure out. Well, you can wh- even have an instigating action, but what the heck's going to happen? Yeah, so which do you enjoy better, this uh, idea of putting that first draft together or coming back and in, in polishing and revising? I really love revising. Um, it's scary as heck to write the first draft and to just keep going and laying down clues for yourself when you don't really know where you're going. Now, some writers outline. I don't. I want to see what I discover. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You're excited by that uh, that unknown. So where does your muse hang out? Where does my muse hang out? On my shoulder, I hope. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, where do you hang out when you're talking to your muse? In a quiet place um it can be outdoors but it's it's more generally in my study or i go to writing residencies and i have a studio and i can be quiet and uh and i do spend a lot of time looking out the window and a bunny comes you know (laughs) and the bunny goes and i'm still thinking but Uh there have to just be hours and hours yeah so you like quiet when you write i like quiet though i have learned that i can write well, when I'm far enough in or revising, I can write with a jackhammer going off if okay. I if I have to. So no music, just just quiet. No music. Yeah, oh no. Okay. All right. Um, and what kind of activities interfere with your writing? Well, besides, I have to walk. Besides, <laughs> besides the bunny outside. Besides that, my students and they're, they're not really interrupting. They're yeah. they're giving me the opportunity to yeah. have a livelihood and and write. Um, my dog. My dog, Sam, who mm-hmm. wants to be walked. Um, but then, you know, it's a, there's a wonderful kind of give and take between writing and then taking a walk because things will come to you as soon as you leave mm-hmm. uh, and go into a different space. You'll think of something else. Uh, so given that we, my, I live with my husband and the dog, um, mm-hmm. on the days I'm writing, I am not that interrupted by many things. I've, I've really learned to tell friends at the door if they happen to call I'm writing. Mm. So uh, you have to really be disciplined about that, I think. And as a teacher, I can ask you this. Um, 
I ask authors sometimes this question. Uh, since you're an instructor too, I'll ask you. Uh, you've been teaching for a while. You've been writing for a while. You've got these books out. Knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger writer self to make her a better writer when she got started? Uh, to trust myself, to trust myself, to pick up my material, to um, and to be bold. I think to be bolder, bolder. Um, we're writing, especially now, in some uh, highly charged times, and I don't think it's time to be timid. So, yeah, I wish someone had encouraged me to be bolder sooner and to really push the limit on the material I have or well, push toward the limit. That's, that's a great, great answer. And we've got, uh, we've got two more reads here that we're going to do. And in that process, uh, we're going to have a bold action, I think, uh, by Tacker because he's exposed to people that uh, – we're sort of being uh, tolerant of intolerant. So, Elaine, if you would, just uh, set this scene up for us. Okay, so um, about maybe two-thirds of the way through the novel, Tacker's mother approaches him about going to hear um, a preacher who's going to be in town, a Baptist preacher who's going to be preaching, and who's going to go to Nigeria for on a revival tour. And she thinks she can <laughs> pull Tacker into this since he's interested in Nigeria. And so it, it turns out that they do go, and, um, and Kate goes with Tacker. So it's Kate and Tacker and his mother sitting up in the balcony. Okay, so the moment I'm picking up here in this scene, the sermon's over. Reverend Ransom, what should we do about the Negro problem? All this activity going on here, sit-ins and such, what do you think about it? Well, that's a good question, Ransom said. I've gone to God about it. After all, I'm getting ready to go to Africa. Folks may ask me about this very thing. We're hearing some demands from our colored brethren about rights, the right to sit at lunch counters, to gain employment in white-owned establishments. There's talk of desegregating public amusements. I respect Negro people for their desire to better, better their lives, but we have a special situation in this country. We've learned to get along in our separate communities. Negroes have created some fine colleges. Certainly colored folk have their own beautiful churches that preach the word of God. But in social situations, I don't condone integration, especially where young people are concerned. I see a lot of danger there. He paused as if he were waiting on God for an update. I'll be praying with you about all of this on my travels. I'll carry it with you. Reverend Ransom lifted his head so that his gaze seemed to depart the church and aim straight at heaven. Thank you, the man in the third row said. A collective sigh went up from the congregation. Tucker felt a chill at the back of his throat. His mother was turning to a page in the hymnal. He stood. If I may, Tucker said, projecting his voice from the balcony. Now we can't keep the reverend here all night, the minister said. It's all right, Reverend Ransom said. One of your fine young men here wants to say something. Someone, was it Kate or his mother, was tugging on the back of Tacker's jacket. I've been to Nigeria, sir, for a year and a half on a building project. I was welcomed there, like a brother. I've never known smarter, more industrious, or kinder people. What a witness, Reverend Ransom said. I appreciate that word from you. 
My point, Reverend Ransom, is that Nigerians treated me as they treat one another, or better. I am not a Bible scholar as you are, but I do know the Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Why doesn't that include Negroes? Why not show them the courtesy of sitting next to you at a lunch counter? Jesus ate with everyone. I remember that from Sunday school. My Lord, a lady to Tacker's left said. Tacker's hands were shaking, and he put them on the pew in front of him and held tight. Son, Reverend Ransom said, there is a time for every season under heaven. But as a man who seeks to know the will of God in all things, I must tell you that what is good is also complex, and getting there is more complex. The ultimate good is to lead people to salvation. I'm sure you can agree with me on that. God bless you. As they bowed their heads for the prayer, Tucker kept his eyes open. Reverend Ransom was intoning the prayer, full of high-flown phrases. As the evangelist reached a high point, Tucker let go of the pew in front of him and looked at his palms, turning his hands over. He observed his skin and considered it as he never had before, not even in Nigeria. What did skin mean, really? What was the difference? And that's a that la- those last two lines are something probably that uh, everybody should be asking themselves, right? What what difference does it make? What color your skin is when it comes to jobs, when it comes to equality, when it comes to opportunity, when it comes to people that you pass on the street or in the parking lot or in the store. He tried, right? He tried to stand up and talk. <laughs> he and did, he, right. He was heard, but was he really heard? No, of right. course not, right. right? Because the religious imperative of, of conversion can trump everything, right? And uh, that's what the this ministry uses. Um, well, this may be an issue we should address, but the but I'm going to do the more important thing. I'm mm. going to save souls. It's more about it's more about saving souls. It's not about uh, equality on this earth. It's right? not about justice, but justice, of course, that's yeah. exactly what Jesus was about. Mm. So, and we're not even uh, you know we're only about three quarters of the way through the book here, right? So, this, <laughs> so there's a lot still to happen in this book, but uh, ultimately, and uh, maybe not above all, but sort of coursing through this entire book is this uh, relationship that's been developing between Tacker and Kate. And Kate is opening up, right? Mm -hmm. She's starting to see the world in a different way, partly through Tacker, but also partly through what she sees as some injustices herself, such as as children checking out books from the library or how they go about doing some... Or children not being able to. That's what I mean, yeah, Yeah. yeah, of, of a certain race and... And so we've got a scene here later in the book uh, where Tacker and Kate are together that just talks a little bit about their relationship. So, Elaine, if you could set this up for us. Uh, Sure. So um, I guess I was wanting to be in Winston-Salem, but being in North Carolina, I also wanted to get these characters to the beach. (laughs) So uh, in the course of the novel... Uh, closer to the end, they take this trip and they go to the beach together and they've had dinner and it's the evening. This is Kate and Tacker. They reached a bench at the end of the pier and sat down. An austerity seemed to envelop Kate. Perhaps she thought of her father. The wind was mild with only a hint of chill to come late in the night. Fishing boats bobbed and rocked. 
Occasionally, Tacker heard a wave smack a hull. Kate sat silently next to him. What are you thinking, he said. I'm trying to remember a poem by Robert Frost, she said. A snow poem. We read it in high school. I can't remember how it begins. There's some question. She closed her eyes. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. I remember that. And miles to go before I sleep. She spoke as if she were uncovering all she had been lonely for, all she had held inside. He wondered if she had carried these thoughts for years, unwrapping them and laying them before him in this talk of winter and woods and miles to go as they sat before boats bobbing at a pier on a May evening. He pulled her to him, and her hair smelled of salt. He felt the sun still in it and kissed her and tasted sun and salt in her mouth and listened to the surf and wind his hands tied around Kate's waist. Somewhere, a bell sounded. Ah, uh, young love, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's a good place to go, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, obviously, there's some more things, listeners, that are going to happen in this book. We're not going to reveal uh, the ending here, but uh, water will come into play, right? Yes, uh, yeah. often, yeah. throughout. And on the cover of the book here, you've got a picture of a huge swimming, uh, I won't call it a swimming hole, it's a large swimming pool. Yes. Is that an actual shot? of? Uh, no, uh, there there never was a pool in uh, Haynes Park. The novel fictionalizes the, the, right. this, that there's going to be a, p- a pool in Haynes Park. No, that's not an actual picture, well, um, it's, but it's a, it's a great one. <laughs> te- technology is really good, right? Yeah. <laughs> to make it look. But you're exploring in that part of the book this uh, idea of, uh, the race is not mixing, you know, in a public park, and, right. they're, and they're building this public pool. Right, right there and, in, in West End. And he's got an architectural job now. Again, yeah, and he's part of the he firm could, that's he, landed this job. He just yeah. couldn't. Um, he sh- just couldn't pass it up, and so yeah. that's toward the end. The tension really uh, ratchets up uh, because it seems that he's betrayed Gaines by. Uh, Okay, he sat with him at the mm-hmm. at the lunch counter, but now he's involved with the swimming pool, which, of course, black children will not be, or no black person will be allowed to enter. So, Elaine, you've uh, obviously been, you know, touring about this book, talking to different book clubs and events about it, uh, and it's led you to probably talk about some issues that maybe you wouldn't normally talk about in a regular novel that has a love interest or something. Mm-hmm. Has that been a good experience for you to, to, to talk about these issues? Uh, oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been overwhelmingly positive. I, I think uh, putting the, the political and the love story together is a wonderful way to draw out the, the conflicts and complexities of, um, of political events because there's always something at stake that's very human, uh, whether it's a child or a love affair, a beloved, um, we're so uh, we're always making decisions in relationships. We're, we're not singular, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think that people have been um, compelled by it. I've been really grateful. Yeah, Tacker and Kate uh, end up making a good team, and they and they fight for what they believe is right. But of course, there are always some twists and turns and uh-huh. some demons and some things that happen. So yeah, so uh, good stuff. Um, I'm going to have information links in the show notes, uh, some pictures of Elaine as well there and uh, information about how to contact her through websites and stuff. So 
Lane, thank you so much for coming down to be on the podcast. Thank you, Landis. Yeah. It's been so delightful. Yeah. Um, you really d- did this so beautifully. I'm uh, so grateful. Yeah, great. Thank Thanks. you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.